0: 72 degrees out right now and our low for the day is expected to be 51 the rest of the week is going to be sitting in the high 70s it's going to drop down to mid 60s and now it's time for planet watch
1: Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman.
2: And I'm Joe Jordan.
1: Today on the program, volcanoes. In addition to volcanoes in Hawaii and Guatemala that are erupting now, there are many more near major metropolitan areas which could erupt at any time. We'll be talking with a volcano expert, David Clague, senior scientist and volcanologist from Ambari, who will take your questions via email. We'll have that interview for you in just a moment.
2: And you can subscribe to our Planet Watch podcast by going to planetwatchradio.com. You can also support us at patreon.com, and that's spelled patreo ncom slash planet underscore watch. We'd also like to th- give special thanks to MZ, Michael Zwirling, for sponsoring this program on our local station here in Santa Cruz, California, K-S-C-O-A-M.
1: We'd also like to give a shout-out to our listeners in North Carolina at the low-power FM station Carborough, Chapel Hill area, and a special shout-out to our friends in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks for listening. And if you're in Redding or Davis, give us a holler on the email. We'd like to hear from you and find out where you're listening to Planet Watch. So why don't you give them the email, Joe?
2: Oh yeah, you can email us anytime during and between shows at uh, Radio Planet Watch, all one word, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com.
1: And we're streaming live, I assume, on Facebook. So say hi to everybody, and you can see their Hawaiian shirts if you look on the camera. (laughs) Yay. Well, we have a special guest who's going to be doing some news with us, and we'll be having him back for a longer interview. Tim Goncharov is our special guest today. He works for the County of Santa Cruz Public Works Department and is an expert on recycling. And he has this story about how China's ban on imported waste is affecting recycling in the United States and specifically in Santa Cruz County. Hi, Tim. Hi. So what do you got for us?
3: Well, Rachel, there's been a lot of troubling news lately about our oceans, about pollution about the collapse of the global recycling market, and there are things to worry about. Plastic trash was recently found at the bottom of the world's deepest ocean trench, almost seven miles down. Since the discovery of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, we've learned that there are similar giant gyres of trash in all of our oceans, and they're getting bigger. Recent studies have found particles of plastic in every sample of water tested, and in many fish and other marine organisms. Countless whales, turtles, and seabirds have died from ingesting plastic. It's just heartbreaking. Most of us are diligent about properly recycling our plastic, but now we hear that China doesn't want it anymore and that there's nowhere else for it to go. So what are we supposed to do? The good news is that large companies like Green Waste, which collects trash and recycling in Santa Cruz County, Are still able to find markets for all of their recyclables, but it gets harder all the time. Some smaller recyclers no longer accept plastic at all, leading to the tragic landfilling of reusable material. More needs to be done to stop the problem at its source. Individuals can make a big difference. From reusable shopping bags to refillable water bottles and coffee cups, your everyday decisions really count. Being a savvy shopper helps too. Buy in bulk when you can. Avoid excess packaging, especially plastic. Buying local helps local businesses and avoids all the waste packaging that comes with products you buy online. There are more measures being implemented around the country and around the world. A couple of examples microplastic fiber pollution that we've been hearing a lot about comes primarily from washing of clothing, most of which is now made of artificial plastic fibers. But there are inexpensive and widely available filters for washing machines that make a huge difference. If you have a washing machine at home, you can install one of these yourself very easily. In Europe, Canada and elsewhere, countries are adopting Extended Producer Responsibility, or EPR, holding manufacturers responsible for collecting and recycling all of the waste from the products they produce. It saves local governments money and also gives companies an incentive to design less wasteful products. Expect to see more of this in the U.S. soon. And don't stop recycling, but please do it carefully. Make sure all your containers are clean, dry, and free of food residue. Sort your recyclables thoroughly so plastic, paper, and other material are properly separated. Just one dirty jar of peanut butter or a box full of plastic and packing peanuts means a whole t- load of recycling can end up in the landfill. In the end, a more sustainable planet is up to all of us. Thank you, Tim.
1: What an interesting story.
2: So, Tim, I've got a question, though. What do we do now that we have this uh, no-more-China syndrome for you know, a dumping ground across the Pacific for all our stuff? What, what are plans? What is actually going on, on now, if anything, about what do we do with all this so-called recycling?
3: Well, it's a good question, Joe. One of the things we should understand is that China isn't doing this just to be mean. China's got tremendous environmental problems, and they're serious about addressing them. And one of the steps they've taken is to stop being the world's trash can. It's hard to be mad at them for that. But China never accepted much more than half of our recycling. There's always been a domestic market, and that's growing. There are new recycling plants being built in the US all the time and there are more g- going up on the periphery of China in places like India, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam. There will always be a market for that material. Manufacturers need it, and it's valuable. So the industry is going to catch up with the need, but it may take a little while. Yeah. I heard
1: that California passed a law saying that manufacturers had to use recycled material in packaging in our state, so if they are based here... They have to use recycled plastic.
3: Isn't that great? We need more laws like that.
1: We do. Thank you, California. And
3: as I asked that
2: question anyway, I realized, as you say, I mean, hey, we ought to just be using good old American ingenuity, as we used to call it, as it used to be, to, to... do our own thing with recyclables and figure out ways to, I don't know, reduce everything to its component component atoms and, you know, chromatographically separate it all and, you know, make it useful to whatever you need all the elements for. You know, there yeah. ought to be a this way to do that. a
3: big wake-up call. Yeah. We can't count on others to solve our problems for us.
1: So we got to do it ourselves. All right, and Tommy has a story for us about something we've heard about before, but a new development.
0: Previously on Planet Watch, we reported on a team from Berkeley that was testing a prototype for a water harvester. The metal organic framework they used to extract drinkable water from the dry desert air and humidity levels in the single digits used just the power of the sun. In a new study published in the journal Science, the team is showing what their harvester can do when scaled up. For every pound of the powdery metal organic framework they used, they were able to capture about three ounces of water every day. While this trail used the expensive or this trial <laughs> used the expensive metal zirconium, the team is also working on a new substance made from aluminum, which will be about 100 times cheaper and is capable of holding twice as much water. These trials are making important steps in a world where some three in 10 people lack access to safe, readily available water.
1: Thank you for that. And speaking to a group of oil company executives, Pope Francis said, climate change is a challenge of epochal proportions that the world must convert to clean fuel. He said, civilization requires energy, but energy use must not destroy civilization. He also had an audience of ExxonMobil, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, Norway's Equinor, and Pemex of Mexico. The Pope said, quote, we need only to take a frank look at the facts to see that our common home is falling into serious disrepair i urgently appeal then for a new dialogue about how we are shaping the future of our planet
2: i liked his use of uh, epical proportions kind of like epic proportions except he was talking about e-p-o-c-h Epochal. an epic like an eon or an age <laughs> So one for the ages. There it's
1: you great that um, international leaders are speaking up on this issue, even as in the G7 summit, our own president walked out of the... He didn't even go mm-hmm. to the climate discussion that was being held by the G7 countries, Europe. So there are other leaders stepping up in the vacuum. Actual,
2: actual leaders. Though. Actual leaders. <laughs> yes.
1: And Maya has a story for us to close out our news section.
4: A Canadian company is tackling our global carbon footprint. Carbon Engineering, a Canadian enterprise, has successfully demonstrated a way to capture emitted carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turn it into fresh fuel. Industrial fans draw in air into contact with a solution that traps the carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide is then extracted from the solution and can be used as a carbon source for making fuels such as gasoline, diesel, or jet fuel. The Canadian firm is already using direct air capture and generating fuel successfully in British Columbia. The engineers claim that the process is scalable, is cost-effective, and uses standard industrial equipment.
1: Thank you for that story. That's really interesting stuff. Well, I'm very excited to have our guest coming online here to talk to us. As you might have been following the news, you might have noticed that there's some volcanic activity very actively happening uh, in Hawaii. With the Kilauea volcano erupting uh, gobs of lava, even changing a bay to becoming a point, people have been watching with bated breath to see what Pele will do next. And it's not just Pele that's active. There's a Guatemala volcano that erupted rather unexpectedly, killing over 100 people and probably many more as they find the victims. To talk about all of this and how it works and what they are learning about volcanoes and to take your questions via email is David Clegg He's a senior scientist and volcanologist with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, MBARI. He spent many years studying Kilauea in Hawaii and now studies underwater volcanoes and their formation. Of course, Hawaiian volcanoes has long been one of his fascinating subject studies and we're very happy to welcome david to the airwaves thank you for being here can you hear us are you there let's see if i can get him on we'll try how about now can you hear us
5: i can hear you i could hear you before you just couldn't hear me
1: (laughs) well now there's a two-way communication so tell us what's happening with kilauea today you've been probably following this quite closely what's the latest you can tell us about uh, how that volcano is evolving
5: Actually, it's been, it's been interesting that for a number of days now, it's been doing more or less the same things. It's gotten into a fairly steady pattern of continuing eruptions from one of the fissures down in the lower Puna area, and that fissure is feeding a, about a 12-mile-long flow that has entered the ocean at Kapoho, which was a bay and is now a point, as you already mentioned, Um, and it is mostly flowing offshore at this point. Uh, At the same time, the summit has also gotten into a much more regular pattern. It's having sort of one explosion a day. They're quite large explosions. um, In terms of energy, the equivalent of a magnitude 5 to 5.5 earthquake, And it's become very periodic in its behavior at the summit. So the summit continues to collapse, uh, but pretty much it's doing today what it did yesterday, and yesterday it was doing what it was doing the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that. So the change, well, there will be more changes. We just don't know what they're going to be quite yet.
2: So. And Dave, uh, you were once uh, for a while the director of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, right?
5: That's correct. That a long time ago.
2: Yeah, and I think you were telling us that, uh, well, it reminds me of you know, how a stream uh, goes underground sometimes and then resurfaces miles farther downstream. Something like that's going on here, I guess. Uh, you've got stuff going on at the summit where a bunch of clouds of smoke and ash are coming out of the, into the sky. But then there's nothing spilling over from there down across the landscape until quite a few miles more toward the coast, you get this blade of, kind of a vertically oriented blade of lava that is uh, percolating along through this fissure area and then erupting up into the, from the fissure there and then finally spilling into the ocean. Is that right?
5: That's correct. Um, I mean, that is the way that Kilauea actually has pretty much always worked and the the eruption has had there's been a lava lake at the summit for close to 10 years now and there has been an eruption going on down the rift zone just not as far away as the current eruption is so all this transition the the eruption that was sort of midway down the rift zone stopped a new eruption started further away from the summit and then the summit changed from having a lava lake in the summit to having explosions as the lava that is stored underground has migrated down towards this new eruption site. So it's quite a complicated plumbing system, (laughs) but but I think we understand it fairly well.
2: You know, I've got a personal take on this. I'm supposed to go to Hawaii, uh, to the big island. I call it the country island. It's a real country island Uh, in August. And of course, it's been experiencing a real drop in tourism uh, probably based on bad information because uh, you, weren't you telling us that, hey, as long as you're not planning to hang out a whole lot in the southeastern part of the island, you're probably okay?
5: <laughs> yeah, the, the press is sort of given a, a, a view that the whole island is being buried in lava, and actually it's a very tiny little part of the island that is being buried in lava. and It's actually a part that very few tourists ever went to. So it it doesn't really affect the, the tourism, even on the big island, much less the other islands. The one area where that might not be true, and it depends on the way the wind is blowing and how strongly, is that all the volcanic gases do get blown elsewhere. They don't just disappear really, really fast, and they can affect air quality. So... You could end up with the equivalent of a sort of a smoggy day in the San Francisco Bay Area um, on the west coast of the island. might have a little more of a sulfury smell to it than that. Um, and occasionally that actually goes as far as some of the other islands, hmm. but uh, I haven't heard of Honolulu or Maui being having effects uh, this time around.
1: And David, I wanted to ask you um, if you could tell us a story about your encounters with Kilauea. Um, Many people now are having very close encounters. They hadn't expected to see lava up that close at 200 feet in the air. Um, When you study lava, do you put on some special like heat insulated suit and like gather it up in a scoop or what do you do? Tell us some stories about being a volcanologist. It must be dangerous and exciting
5: well it it is both. Um, generally, the staff at the observatory do not use heat repellent suits and things, or uh, we certainly didn't when I was there twenty twenty some years ago. Um, in part, it's really a good thing to be able to feel how hot the area is where you're working tells you how long you should or should not stay there if you have on a suit you're still getting hot you just don't feel it as much and so um i never have liked them um usually if you need it you're someplace where you shouldn't be
1: (laughs) (laughs) so how close have you gotten to lava what's the closest you've gotten where you started to singe
5: (laughs) um well, actually, it'll 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 give you a nice uh, radiant heat burn um, in a fairly short time on you know face and hands and things. Um, but I mean, we sample lava just with a with a rock hammer and you scoop it, dump it in a bucket of water to to quench it, and so you're literally your hand is six inches from molten lava when you collect it.
2: Um, this is not a movie. Pretty- not moving very fast,
5: I take it. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not moving really <laughs> fast at that point. Um, this flow is is different. It's a it's a very um, large volume flow. Most of the last thirty five years that Pu'u has been erupting, it's been erupting rather quietly with little lobes of uh, smooth pahoehoe lava, um, which advance. Slowly, and as long as you're paying attention, it's hard to get in too much trouble. Um, This is a great big channelized flow uh, of rubbly lava, and so it's it's more dangerous. There's much more heat there, and I suspect that they are collecting samples that are pieces that were thrown through the air and have landed on the ground. Mm -hmm. Hmm.
2: Isn't that That rubbly? isn't that rubbly kind of lava, the stuff they call a ah as opposed that's, to pohoy That's the
5: ah lava, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is a great big ah flow, <laughs> and it's now ah-ah flow. It, it is an open channel, though, that goes almost to the coast. It's now, uh, as of this morning, the cha- open channel, incandescent lava, was within two miles of the ocean. Mm. So it's, it's really almost the entire flow, and that channel extends with time. So it makes sort of levees around itself that help insulate it and channelize it. And so it'll extend with time. And probably by t- tomorrow, that open channel will be hitting the ocean.
1: And we'll see a lot of steam and smoke and log generated when that happens, I'm sure.
5: Yeah, it'll, it'll get to be more more um, what they call lava haze or laze is produced at the ocean entry which is a hydrochloric acid solution uh, in the air. So the chlorine comes from seawater, and the hydrogen is a reaction product of, of the la- hot lava and seawater. <laughs> so that, that's a fairly nasty material. We learned about it during long periods when whoa, lavas were flowing into the ocean. And if you work down at the coast... It it's acidic enough that it actually kind of tingles your skin a little bit when droplets of it land on you. But when you really find out about it is when you wash your clothes afterwards because they fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> wow, having, having been acid washed <laughs> Sort of it's the whole... ultimate in acid washed jeans
1: <laughs> <laughs> You don't really want your skin to be that, that color either So if you just joined us on Planet Watch I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan And we're speaking with David Clegg of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute And you can join us and ask questions of David while we're on the air live with him
2: By emailing us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com.
1: I'm sure you have questions after you've been watching this amazing lava show from California, from uh, Kilauea over in Hawaii. Uh, It's really something. We're very fascinated by that beautiful red glowing rivers, something elemental about, it it attracts our attention and Uh, curiosity.
2: Something Rachel just mentioned uh, and uh, Dave was talking about laze, L-A-Z-E, kind of lava haze. But there's the VOG, that's a kind of a more commonplace thing over there. You go over to the big island, Hawaii, and there's always VOG, it seems. It's just a combination of volcano smoke and fog. Uh, If you're in a foggy part of the island, you get VOG. But that's not anything to do with the lava hitting the ocean.
5: Hmm. No, that's not the lava hitting the ocean. That's the gases that are coming out during the eruption, the magmatic gases that come out of the lava, that actually are what drive it to the surface. It's all the gas bubbles in lava that make it rise and erupt. That gets released into the atmosphere, and it combines with water, and it basically makes a sulfuric acid, little droplets, and sulfur dioxide in the air, which which gives, uh, again, it's an acidic rain. It has caused problems on the island for the last because it's been happening continuously for almost 35 years it's caused problems with um, there are certain types of crops that don't like acid rain even mildly acid rain so things like tomatoes which used to be grown commercially in various parts of the island they won't grow Hmm. and other things that were a problem most of the island Um, has catchment water. So you catch the rain that falls on your roof, it goes into a tank, and you pump it into your house after adding some water purifiers to it. My house had one of these systems when we lived there. The acid rain, the roofs commonly have old houses. They had lead gaskets to keep the nail holes from leaking. Hmm. And the acid rain was leaching lead. Wow. And so it turned out to be quite a health hazard on the island when all of this acidic rain started with the eruption. Like I say, it's been going on for 35 years. I suspect by now there are no more lead gaskets on roofs on the island. Sure. That makes a lot they've of all, sense. all been replaced.
1: So so far speaking of, you know, hazards, 600 homes have been destroyed and they've evacuated a lot more. I assume it's because of the health hazards you can't even see, including I by the way, the mayor of the Big Island's house got consumed. Um, mm. I was surprised he lived in that area. Very surprised.
5: I, actually I I think he lives in Hilo and this is his second home. House, but I'm yeah. not sure about that.
1: Which does raise uh, the question, you know, <clears throat> why, why do people build there? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, but... Uh,
5: they built there because it was a tropical paradise with a known hazard. None of us do that. Of course, I live within about five miles of the San Andreas <laughs> Fault. You live within five miles of the San Andreas Fault. Uh, but yeah. none of us would be foolish enough to li- live in a high hazard area oh. or perhaps the coast of florida where they get a hurricane every few years uh so it's just a different kind of hazard that's right everyone has their um level of risk that they're willing to take or to to live where they would like to live and that's true in hawaii just as it is elsewhere
1: what's different about hawaii is that people have paid cash for their homes they had no insurance and no mortgage so you know, they're starting over pretty much. They don't get any money back from having lost their home.
5: To, to a great degree, that was true when the, uh, when the development started. Since we actually talked the other day, I've, I have learned a little bit more about that. And there actually is now a hell an uh, insurance program for mortgages in the ha- high hazard zones. It's similar to California's earthquake insurance program. Uh, you pay it extra. In fact, it was yeah. modeled after it. And so you can actually get a mortgage. I'm sure it's very expensive. That I did not look up.
1: Yes, indeed.
5: It did not exist when I I lived out there 20 years ago.
1: One thing, it must happen to you a lot, and I'm sure it happens to people who study earthquakes as well. With science, um, there's a lot you can know, but there's a lot of people pressuring you to know and say more, like to predict what's going to happen next, Dr. Clegg, with my house? Is it going to get burned up? Or what are the probabilities, you know, that there'll be another big explosion in five days? They're really pushing you, aren't they, on this kind of information? How do you deal with that? How do you feel about when you get questions like that?
5: Mm. It, um, it is something that happens. Most of the public and most of the media want a yes or no kind of answer you know is the volcano going to explode yes or no is the lava flow going to cover my house yes or no you have a
1: 50 50 chance of being right
5: (laughs) and the science is actually not very good at that scale Um, we can predict that the flows are going to continue from some place until they stop, and you don't know when it's going to be. Right. And so uh, my favorite expression on this is that predictions are hard, especially if they're about the future. Yeah. <laughs> Old Yogi Berra. <laughs> Old Yogi Berra statement, and it's, it's absolutely true in hazards prediction, and it's true in all kinds of hazards. Earthquakes, it is strictly a, a probability based on what has happened in the past. With the eruptions, it's largely based on what has happened in the past, and right now Kilauea is doing a series of events that we haven't ever seen before, and so it makes the predictions exceedingly difficult. And I mean, I I could just as easily say, oh, the eruption is going to stop tomorrow. Or I could say, hmm, I think it's going to last for 200 years, and there are models that one could use for anything in that range. Um, it and it also, what happens today, does affect what happens tomorrow. Mm, not so much with earthquakes. Uh, what happens today, you you don't. It has almost no effect on what will happen tomorrow. Hmm. And weather effects are even worse. That you had a hurricane this week doesn't mean you won't have one next week.
1: Right. In California, Uh, we've been uh, dealing with that probability issue for a long time. They've been saying the big one's coming ever since I was a kid. And they said it's going to happen within 30 years, or at least that's the way I heard it. And then when 30 years was up, I kept thinking, well, good. We got through that 30 years that maybe we're (laughs) safe.
3: (laughs) Totally. Lots in Palm Springs are a real bargain. Yes. Well, when it when illogical.
5: the when the likely event does not, uh, when when an event does not happen within the period that the scientist expected it to happen, it actually means that the probability of it happening in the next thirty years is greater.
1: So let's go back so, to the monitoring side because you guys do like take the. The volcano's temperature and its earthquakes, and you're testing it all the time. That might not be to let you exactly predict, but you can give reports on, kind of what the days, you know, eruptions are looking like now, and what what might happen in the short term. Right. I mean, you are monitoring not just for science. You're hoping to give people some information, and
5: yeah, for for example, the areas that are evacuated. In part, they're evacuated. And, and there are, oh, I don't know how many houses are still evacuated, but it's probably another 1,500 in addition to the 600 that have been lost. It might be more. Um, those are based on immediate threats. Otherwise, in other words, there's a lava flow still or a vent that's still active nearby, and it could start spilling lava in a different direction or it could be because of the volcanic haze. turns out most of the current evacuations in Lower Puna are because all the roads have been cut. They all have lava flows that have cut them off, and so most of those houses that have been evacuated do not have road access any longer, Hmm. which means if people stay there and the eruption changes, they can't get out.
1: They'd have to walk out, I guess. So one question I wanted to uh, also remind our audience, you can ask questions of uh, Dr. Clegg. He's here with us. He's a volcanologist. He studied Kilauea and other volcanoes quite extensively. So if you have questions about Kilauea or the one in Guatemala or Mount St. Helens or Lassen or Shasta or Rainier. Or um,
2: Yellowstone.
1: <laughs> yeah, or the supervolcano, now would be a good time. And you can email us at Radio Planet Watch. That's all one word, at gmail.com. And we may venture to the telephones if we feel brave enough.
2: Speaking of Yellowstone, we were talking about timescales a minute ago. Now we move to millions of years, but maybe less than millions of years for the really, really big one. Um, Something that uh, Dave told uh, Rachel and me on the phone the other day that blew my mind, I sort of think of my head as a volcano, one of the most (laughs) mind-blowing facts that we got was that when Yellowstone went off big time, like, uh, I don't know, a million years ago or so, the reason why the whole Midwest is so fertile, the breadbasket of the world... Is because of I don't know inches or feet of ash deposited during a huge eruption of Yellowstone uh, way back when. And uh, Dave says that could happen, or it's probably going to happen again. Tell us the story on that one, Dave. (laughs)
1: Wouldn't it keep us up at night? I don't want to hear it.
5: (laughs) (laughs) It isn't that it it probably will happen again. It will happen again. Oh damn! (laughs) It may not happen. For a million years, right? And so then you have to decide: Are how worried are you going to be about an event that is improbable to take place not only in your lifetime, but in you know the next hundred and fifty or five hundred generations of your family? And that's the kinds of time frames that geologists are sort of used to thinking about as million-year timescale. And, yes, these things happen, but they're exceedingly infrequent events. Uh, um, One that I'm very familiar with, the, the timing of, there are gigantic landslides that have occurred around the Hawaiian Islands. And, in fact, the south side of Kilauea, where the big earthquake was related to this eruption, it is sliding seaward. And it moves seaward in, in increments. But every now and then, one of the, an entire flank of a volcano slid into the ocean as a giant landslide. And, and it turns out there's about 17 of these around the islands. So the islands are five million years old. So in five million years, there's 17 of these that we know about which means it's an event that happens every 300,000 years sort of numbers. And I find it hard to worry about things that have that <laughs> time, time scale.
1: When they say you're overdue for, you know, whatever, I always say, well, what does that mean, overdue? Does that mean someone's getting angry that we haven't had an earthquake yet in 300,000 years? Um, I think we are going to take a few f- questions by phone if people have questions. And, Joe, you can give the phone number out. Well. Let Griffin oh, yeah. do a little work here with us. Yeah, it. we're
2: going to do a little uh, something kind of unusual here, a little special treat for today since it's such a hot topic. Um, call 479-1080, 479-1080. 831. Yeah, in the 831 area code, right.
1: If you're so listening that's, live. That's where if you're listening here. uh yeah, if you're listening, in uh, North Carolina, uh, archived,
2: you're prob- uh, no hope. <laughs> yes,
1: but you can always email us, and we'll try to forward your email to our guest. We're talking with Dr. David Clegg. He's a volcanologist, and you can also write to us at radioplanetwatch at com. Do you have any questions over there in the peanut gallery? No, nope, people just aren't interested in volcanoes. That's why they're covering them 24-7 over there. <laughs>
2: <It's> too,
5: um, <laughs> <too beautiful>. Everybody's <laughs> working in their spring garden today. Yeah. <laughs> it's too and beautiful intro- a day
2: here in the Santa Cruz area.
1: Let's sure. uh, move to Guatemala and ask you, uh, how were people taken so off guard by the explosion of the volcano in Guatemala?
5: Okay, so Guatemala is not my area of expertise, so to a certain degree what I know is what's in the news. Um That volcano, um, El Fuego, has been active for a number of years, and it had a a sort of a series of events that it would do that were quite small. And I think the people who were living on it got used to the events being very small and actually something that they could watch. And that was, and, and this time around, it did something much bigger and more dramatic and it caught people off guard because they, it had gotten into a pattern. Now, when I look at Kilauea right now, I think the same thing. Kilauea is getting into a pattern. The flow is doing today what it did yesterday. The summit had one explosion today, This, you know, overnight. It had one the day before. It had one the day before. They're now kind of 20 to 25 hours apart. We don't want to get complacent and think that we understand what it's doing because they can always... Change to a different dance, Great. and that's sort of the way I think about these series of events. And I think that's exactly what happened hmm. in uh, in Guatemala, that that the volcano had sort of lulled everybody into a false sense of security that they knew what was coming next,
2: and, and then it, then it pulled a fast one on them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we have it, a, yeah, it basically yeah. it basically,
5: you know, pulled an extra ace from up <laughs> its sleeve, and off they went.
1: So uh, we do have a caller from Pacific Grove. Dan is on the line. Let's see what he has to say. Dan, do you have a question for us? Oh, let's see if I can get Dan let's on think, line. Uh, oh, there really we go.
4: Really interesting. So are we on now? Yeah, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Hey, uh, great Great interview. I really appreciate uh, this gentleman joining you, and you're doing a great job. A couple uh, things come to mind. Back in the, in the early 80s, about the time of uh, within a year of the Mount, Mount St. Helens eruption. There was also, I think that was 81 or 2. Then there was also a massive eruption in southern Mexico. I was very nearby that one, they called. they called it El Chacon uh, locally. It, it shut down railways, highways, everything south of Mexico City for almost a week. And then also within a space of a year from Mount St. Helens, there was, uh, was it Pinatubo? There was a massive one in Asia. 91. So, well, yeah, there was, a, it there was another, another large one about that time frame, and then I, I remember seeing a climatologist interviewed uh, on television, and the question was asked of that person, "Will this affect our weather or the longer-term climate?" And the fellow said, "Oh, absolutely." And the person said, "Well, how? What's going to happen?" He says, "I don't know. This is how we find <laughs> that out." That sounds
1: just right. About right. So, would you want to try to answer that <laughs> well, question with the same okay. answer?
5: Okay. <laughs> I, I can I, try I and a, address I don't, I don't, that. Um, Volcanic eruptions that throw a lot of ash into the high atmosphere, into the stratosphere, they actually reflect sunlight. The particles reflect sunlight back. And so their net effect is to cool the planet. The size of any of those eruptions, Mount Pinatubo or El Chichon, were such that they probably cooled the northern hemisphere for a year or so. But to do a longer-term change would mean a much, much bigger eruption with much more ash being thrown very high into the atmosphere. And the eruption in Guatemala was actually a very small eruption, and the eruptions at Kilauea, the ash is not even getting close to the stratosphere. Most of these ash columns are uh, going 6,000 feet above ground level. Uh, what, uh, uh, what
4: you would know this? I what sort of
5: gases are emitted from a volcanic eruption that might impact uh, climate, even local short-term weather? Okay, it depends on the kind of volcano and where it's located. So the volcanoes ah. that are around the Pacific Rim, so the Mount St. Helens and the Mount Pinatubos and the Mount Redoubts in Alaska, those actually the primary gases are water and sulfur. And the uh, kind like in Hawaii, the primary gases are carbon dioxide and sulfur. And so okay. they're driven by different gases and they and they have different effects on climate, but none of them put enough the the contribution from volcanoes of say CO two into the atmosphere is, you know, what one coal-burning power plant puts out in a year kind of numbers. I mean, they're really... Oh, interesting, interesting. Interesting. Thank you, Dan.
1: Thank you for your Um, call. I appreciate your time, and and thanks for calling in. So, uh, 479-1080, we have a little bit more time, area code 831. And um, that's a really good point that, you know, it it does put out CO2 but not... um,
2: Yeah, that's something that people can't hear often enough because there's this myth out there that the Climate deniers like to perpetuate that, oh, volcanoes dwarf humans in their contribution of carbon into the atmosphere. No, it's exactly the other way around. It's <laughs> a factor of 100. Right. It's a factor of like 60 to 100 times more CO2 coming from human activities than from volcanoes, believe it or not. But well, it is true.
3: It's
1: the wishful fact. thinking part of us also probably wishes volcanoes would come to our rescue and that it's Gaia <laughs> trying to balance everything, but I don't know that that could be scientifically proven today um we haven't talked about rainier we haven't talked about shasta because we're so self-centered here in california we want to know if shasta or lassen were to go um what would happen to the central valley there's some dam near one of them right could you tell us more about that dan i mean dave sorry. okay well
5: well okay um mount shasta in particular is just north of shasta dam which is a one of the larger reservoirs in california and probably an eruption that actually poured material in into that, or ash flows into that, could could breach that dam. Now, Shasta is not—I mean, it it has earthquakes every now and then, but it's not a, it's not a highly um, active volcano at this point. Um, it is also monitored carefully, so they'll know before something happens there. Same for. Actually, for all of the Cascade volcanoes, starting from from Mount Lassen north to, all the way to Mount Rainier and Mount Baker beyond, so all of those have monitoring equipment on them. Um, we do actually have volcanoes that aren't monitored elsewhere in the world, and um, you know things in the Kuril Islands and Kamchatka and places like that do not all have monitoring equipment on them, and they pose sort of unknown. Airline ha- hazards or hmm. aircraft hazards. They can erupt and we don't even know about it until you get a, a report from a pilot that they see in a mm. column.
1: And what about uh, Rainier? That's a pretty dangerous one simply because so many people live near it. Is that correct?
5: Yeah, I would consider Mount Rainier to be the most dangerous volcano in North America. Hmm. Uh, mainly because it doesn't have to erupt to be dangerous. How so? It, well, it has lot of altered rock and loose material that it's made of and so an earthquake or a really heavy rainfall fall could actually create mud flows that come off of it and so it and and there's a very large population living on its lower slopes so it's it's a dangerous volcano and um it's again is not one that that rumbles very often so it it doesn't it doesn't have earthquakes very frequently Uh, most of the cascade volcanoes every now and then they'll have a little earthquake swarm and get everyone's attention in the volcano business Um, but rainier as far as i know hasn't had any of those for quite some time speaking
1: of the volcano business as we wrap up this interview this must be an exciting time for you
5: (laughs) getting a lot of action there's always volcanoes erupting. <laughs> For me, it's exciting just because it's one of the ones I know best is 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 active right now, and so that's that's been um, exciting. Uh, you don't learn a lot from a volcano when it's not doing anything. You don't really learn how it how what its behaviors are and what the plumbing is like and sort of what makes them tick and when they. I like to phrase it, when they get cranky, (laughs) then you learn a lot about what's going on inside them. Unfortunately, that's also when they're that most hazardous. So you, you start to have, we learn more about the volcano to understand it so that we can prevent losses in the future. But the times when you're learning the most are when there are losses occurring right now
1: yeah but you're also gaining, really gaining real estate all, all we're, we're actually making the earth have more land and real estate as as the only way you can really do that except to like have landfills and stuff so
2: just in case speaking of land people uh are a little bit uh sparse on the geography the huge population we were referring to right next to mount rainier is of course seattle seattle tacoma area uh, major, wonderful city. And uh, so let's hope that Rainier cools mud, it mud for a good which long is built time. built on ash
5: flows from, and mud flows from Mount Rainier.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately we're just about out of time. I want to thank you, uh, David Clegg from MBARI, from the Monterey Bay Area Aquarium Research Institute, just down the way um, in Monterey, Moss Landing area. It's been a fascinating discussion, and uh, wish you well in the next uh, months or two as you look at all of this activity and learn more from it.
2: Thank you very much. And Dave, you're welcome to you know hang on. We had him not in the studio, but by phone, but the voice connection was really good. But uh, we, you could, you're welcome to just hang on and tune in for the rest of the show, all eight more minutes of it or so. so but great talking with you, and okay. thanks so much for joining us.
5: Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, so uh, let's see. We are going to just finish off the hour here with our usual uh, oddball stuff, you know, stuff from the sky, and, you know, science ideas, quizzes, puzzles, and so on. And um, with a little help from our interns, Tommy and Maya. And Rachel has to rush off to a meeting. But thanks, Rachel, and uh, have a good, good week. And we'll uh, see what's on tap for next week on Planet Watch Radio um so something that uh, is happening tonight wherever you are in the world and we do have people listening on all seven continents now by the way and at least 20 some odd countries um is you will see the brilliant planet venus in the west in the evening lined up with two bright stars it'll they'll be making a perfect line and Rachel check that out through the trees uh when the sun goes down up at your place there too up the road in Bonnie Dune um Uh, the two stars that are almost equal brightness but both much dimmer than the super-brilliant Venus are the Gemini twins, Castor and Pollux. And Venus has been below them for the last weeks and it's been making its way up, or you could say the stars have been making their way down to where they're all three lined up tonight. And then, you know, tomorrow night and beyond, Venus will be up above and to the left of Castor and Pollux. Now, an interesting thing, about the star Castor, as in, you know, the Castor bean uh, from which Castor oil that some of us as kids had to take when we weren't feeling good, horrible tasting stuff, C A S T O R. That's the rightmost star of the pair that you will see to the right of Venus. That star, and now here comes the X rated part of this program. You ready? That star, that one star, is a sextuple star. <laughs> <laughs> It's a triple-double star. Believe it or not, in what looks like one dot to our eye, there's actually three pairs of stars. Each pair has two stars orbiting each other. There's one pair over here with two stars orbiting each other, another pair over here with two stars orbiting each other. Those two pairs are orbiting each other, and the third pair of orbiting each other's stars is orbiting around the other two pairs. All that's happening in that one dot. And if you look carefully with the naked eye uh, at that constellation, the, the, the two stars, Castor and Pollux, are sort of the heads of the two brothers that are standing next to each other, the, the twins, the Gemini twins. Um, they're slightly different colors. Uh, Castor on the right is a little bit bluer and dimmer. Pollux on the left, closer to Venus these nights, is a little bit brighter and kind of yellower. And they're at different distances, too. Um, So anyway, that is one of the Zodiac constellations. And uh, the Zodiac is the set of all constellations. Well, it's a whole band of about 12 constellations that the sun gets in front of as we go around the sun. You know, there's always some stars behind the sun, right? You go outside right now, if you're in North America, you look up and you, there's one bright star. Where are all the other ones? Well, you can't see them because the sun's too bright and the atmosphere is outshining them. But there are stars behind that blue. <laughs> and in particular, there are stars behind the sun now. And they aren't, well, in about a month uh, or two, it'll be Gemini or, uh, you know, it'll because the, since Gemini is going down now right Just after sunset, the whole sky advances westward by four minutes every night and stars set earlier every night. And after a couple of weeks, hey, they're setting an hour earlier and so on. So pretty soon, Gemini is going to be behind the sun. And so if you are a Gemini... You were born in one of the late spring or early summer months, (laughs) and uh, it is your constellation, but you cannot see your zodiac sign during the month you were born because that's when the sun is in front of, in the way of your constellation. That's something that uh, a lot of uh, even astrology people don't necessarily know about. Um, Let's see. One last thing I wanted to mention here was that, uh, yeah, there was a, a news item... Uh, this week uh, that some analysis of data from one of the Mars rovers has shown intriguing signs of uh, the molecules out of which life can be formed on Mars and there are a couple signs one a signature in some rocks and the other a signature in uh, fluctuations in a certain key trace gas in the atmosphere cyclic fluctuations We'll just have to uh, address that more next week. Uh, I'm going to talk to some of the NASA folks and, and get get the latest scoop on that. And uh, m- stay tuned. <laughs> um, one question that Tommy, our intern, was asking me on the way over here, and we'll have to get a report on this too, for next week was, well, okay, 600 homes have been destroyed over there in Hawaii. Um, whither those people those denizens of those homes uh you know i guess they're staying with family and friends and tommy said he'd heard that they've set up some special shelters and things for people but uh you know they've got to go somewhere and not a whole lot of real estate on that island um so i don't know maybe some of you listeners out there or tommy what do you what you got on that i just want to say i'm wishing those people the
0: best and i can't imagine what they're going through trying to find a place to live right now
2: yeah, yeah, we, we wish that we send them our best wishes. I mean, the good news is, that if there is any, is that it's not like a sudden wallop like what happened in Guatemala. I mean, you, you can sort of see this one coming. It's kind of like you can tell like a week ahead, oops, our house is doomed, it's toast. Uh, but you had a little time to deal with it, and you got, you got out alive. Right. But
0: uh, The constant coverage on the news has to be kind of tough to watch
2: yeah well i think it's time for us to sign off now maya is going to use her talents to and our engineer griffin thanks to you we're going to bring in the planet watch music which is the jupiter uh track from gustav holst's the planets and there it is so this has been joe jordan thanks to our special guest tim Goncharov, no, tommy pleasure. martin maya rodriguez and rachel goodman and keep an eye on the sky and have a great week
4: And you can catch our podcast at planetwatchradio.com. Thanks for listening.
2: Bye-bye.